And actually there is very little to zero. And I'm being nice here and saying that there is a little bit research to mm -hmm. show that posture has a direct correlation to pain. Now, those of us as a practitioner who work with people know that there are certain postures that when you move them around, people can have less pain as a result of that. But you know, we have to be discerning and into what this means is that when somebody walks in the door and they have chronic pain or they're hurting and they have a certain posture, we have to be careful of saying you're hurting because you're in that posture versus you're in pain and that's why you're doing that posture. They say that life is full of opportunities, right? So why are so many of us dreading getting out of bed to face another day? I know what that's like. My life was full of conflict, stress, failure, and fear. When I got cancer for the second time, my choice was simple, change or die. Today, I love waking up. I love my life. I love owning my own business that is helping people learn and grow. So how do you unlock that kind of transformation in your life? Let's discover the answers together as we hear from ordinary people like you and me and their extraordinary success stories. My name is Donna Gammon, and this is Power to Grow. Welcome everyone to the show today. We have a very special guest. Um, we have Sam Disnick and Sam is going to share with us a little bit about his kind of backstory. But before he does, I'm going to share a little bit about him. So Sam has studied dozens of systems and methodologies for uncovering the root cause of aches and pains, along with postural and movement issues, pain science, and the art of science of hands-on soft tissue massage techniques. So microfacial release and some coaching movements is essential for his practice. When you use the different techniques with different people and situations, along with integrations of movements that people want to do again, is the key to long-term success with Sam's incredible track record with his personal clients. So he has a release muscle therapy program that is unique from other hands-on therapy approaches. So Sam, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, but also about how did you come about learning this and, and understanding the pain and how to help it? Well, first of all, I have to congratulate you on when making it through that excessive bio, <laughs> which I think obviously needs to be kind of like retooled a little bit, but um, thank you so much. And um, happy to be here and to explain a little bit more about what all of that means. Um, so essentially, my primary work has been with uh, dealing with people who have chronic pain. I, I started off in this field when I was about 19 years old, and it was about that time where my parents kind of gave me the boot to get out of the house, you either get a job or, you know, you're going to go to college, didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was into fitness. So I loved lifting weights. I was the classic skinny kid who needed to spend more time in the gym. And so to me, it was something that I wanted to do. And, and funny enough, I hadn't realized this to somebody who was, um, I guess, to some degree, when I was younger, a bit of a class clown. But uh, as I grew older, it just started developing some more kind of social anxieties. So I think it was kind of weird now looking back, having been somebody who kind of had some of these issues that wanted to actually uh, have to engage with people all day, every day as somebody who was relatively yeah. became introverted. So that was kind of part of this. And um, 
as I started working with people, it was never really on pain when I first started. It was about fitness. But of course, when I started to realize very quickly and I worked through a large gym train uh, chain, that virtually everybody had something wrong. They had back problems, they had knee problems, and they had usually kind of gone through the regular um, you know, sequence of uh, gone to see their medical doctor, physical therapy, and so forth. And they were just kind of stuck in this kind of land of, hey, I, I want to get fit or I want to lose weight or whatever it is that they wanted to do. But yet they were oftentimes limited. They couldn't do certain exercises and so forth, or they had just the uh, usual stuff. And uh, I would just modify exercises for them. And I was able to be creative and get people to do things. And a lot of times along the way, not because I was trying to help them specifically with that problem, but people's aches and pains would go away. And I knew that I was actually onto something and people said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd been to two physical therapists, a couple doctors, chiropractors, and none of that stuff helped me. And you've been just like making me work around the issue and I feel stronger and, you know, I'm feeling a lot better. So that kind That's of, awesome. yeah. And so you start to realize as a, as a young kid, I was about 19, 20 and, you know, I'm like, wow, I can get paid a lot of money for this, you know? So <laughs> it, it kind of grew out of that to begin with is that I guess I kind of had a knack for it. It was a little bit more of a duck in water and I didn't have a problem with a lot of other people didn't like working with the chronic pain issues because they were kind of fearful of hurting people and so forth. And then that way I, I didn't really, you know, I read a lot of books. I mean, I read every book I could find on, um, you know, progressive exercises and what people did in physical therapy and so forth and so forth. So that was kind of like what I had done. And, um, you know, in, in the process of doing this, uh, you'd get stuck because not everybody's issues is some kind of structural mechanical issue that you can exercise your way through. There's a lot of stuff that uh, goes into this, especially when people start dealing with chronic pain. And little had I known early on all of those different facets that were involved in dealing with chronic pain. And that led me into a lot of different adjacent fields of study that uh, I had to learn and uh, some of them, of course, pushed my own personal development. And I think that's kind of what you were uh, talking to uh, when we first introduced as, as someone who had dealt with a lot of issues. I think I you know, started off somewhere in the neighborhood about 16, 17, I remember. And I think most people know this story well. They remember having their first panic attack, you know, so um, and some kind of stress response that had occurred. And um, these had happened, I think, on a quasi regular basis early on when I was a teenager. And I didn't know what to do with them, what they were or how to cope with them at all. I even thinking back at it now, it was very strange for me to think why I never actually told my parents or tried to seek help for these sorts of things. So it ended up going to a path of kind of like trying to cope with it in whatever ways that I could, which weren't necessarily ideal ways. Um, but that led me into, you know, always trying to figure out kind of like I knew that I was I was having fear over these kinds of social situations and so forth, which would trigger this. Later on, I would come to realize that I was having a lot of biochemical imbalances that were triggering this, uh, namely things like blood sugar imbalances and drinking too many energy drinks, caffeine, not sleeping well. Isn't that the case today? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and through a mixture of kind of like having learned this stuff, when I went and had to learn about things like, um, at the time, this was back, you know, almost 20 years ago, when adrenal fatigue was starting to become something that people were talking about, I'd be sitting in this lecture and with the intention of being able to help my clients with inflammation issues and so forth, and sitting there being like, whoa, that's my problem. And obviously having to start applying that stuff on myself and um, noticing 
wow, you know what, when I haven't been eating for a long time and I drank, you know, an energy drink, I'm more likely to feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. Oh, this is a coincidence. And uh, just kind of be able to self to work myself through some of these issues. At the same time, I'd done a lot of personal development stuff. I got uh, wrapped up quite a bit in Tony Robbins and, you know, my early 20s. Tony. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, studied a lot of things like uh, neuro-linguistic programming, I have a long history with that, and uh, hypnotherapy. And a lot of these things early on had led me to uh, be able to better help my clients, namely in the, in the realm of communication, but also to a lot more understand all of the intertwining factors that are uh, usually associated. I shouldn't say usually, they are associated to dealing with chronic pain. And we call that now looking at what's called the biopsychosocial uh, model which is uh, essentially the thought process that an issue that somebody has is not just the issue, but there's lots of other factors that envelop that issue, which can perpetuate symptoms. They can oftentimes sustain certain behaviors and so forth that will make that issue uh, stick around in the long run. And those issues are oftentimes under uh, appreciated in the, in the context of the whole of the issue that someone is dealing with. Yeah, so you're talking about that deep kind of seated kind of emotions that are inside of us. And uh, I love that you're bringing that up because not only is physical pain pain in the physical, but when we go deeper, we find a lot of that stems from other things, other emotions and things like that. So, so you've got all kinds of amazing training. Um, and, and I love that you're using the hypnotherapy. I think that absolutely works. I also use that and the, um, NLP and, and things like that as well. Just really, really good stuff. So you kind of incorporated that, but you also found some movement and some techniques and some things that were kind of working for you that just kind of happened is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, and from the beginning, I was taught a model because this is pretty much where in the uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, where the corrective exercise boom was happening, where personal mm -hmm. trainers and fitness people were now being shown, hey, look at people's posture, look at the way that they move, et cetera. So a lot of this work has an extension because always uh, from the get-go, pain oftentimes when people seek help for it is movement induced, meaning oftentimes when they move, it makes them hurt. So there is always a movement component to it and a, and a soft tissue component. So I do extensive physical evaluations, range of motion, orthopedic stuff, et cetera. So that's always a part of my work. If you go to my Instagram, you'll see that there's a lot of movement-based stuff there. And obviously now, because of the internet, there's more people looking for this stuff. But then there's another element of this, which is, you know, I had done mountains of research, uh, especially in recent years on chronic pain itself. And it's amazing what's in the literature and what the literature shows after lots and lots of studies of people with chronic pain and also what's out there in the mainstream and what's on social media in terms of what people think is, is pain-based. So uh, for example, easy one here is posture. We still are oftentimes led to believe that posture itself is actually a factor that is, is causing someone's pain. So if you slouch you know, this is why you're hurt and so forth. But the research does not actually support this at all. And most people don't know this. And actually there is very little to zero. And I'm being nice here and saying that there is a little bit research to mm -hmm. show that posture has a direct correlation to pain. Now, those of us as a practitioner who work with people know that there are certain postures that when you move them around, people can have less pain as a result of that. 
But, you know, we have to be discerning and into what this means is that when somebody walks in the door and they have chronic pain or they're hurting and they have a certain posture, we have to be careful of saying you're hurting because you're in that posture versus you're in pain and that's why you're doing that posture. So these are two completely different things. So what we're looking for is and at somebody is their behavior. This is what they're doing right now. We don't know why they're doing that. And that's where the digging has to go in is that if I actually do some manual therapy work on somebody that is not directly related to fixing their posture, and then that person feels better, they will stand upright and you'll see that their posture has improved. Exactly. So that's the result of it. So we're always looking at these chicken or egg scenarios. And oftentimes what we get into is, you know, again, looking at this kind of static picture and making a lot of assumptions from it and you know, as we know, it's kind of like you can't, you can't take a snapshot of a movie and then determine what the entire movie is about from just looking at the snapshot. So there's a lot of things that are happening with the human being that we have to kind of look at. And even in the context of being in this office, people change their behavior relative to what they do when they're not here. So um, a lot of this is, I feel like, is a lot of behavioral studies and a lot of behavioral interventions. And there's a lot of ways that you can, you can interact with uh, behavior in someone's nervous system, from communication to doing manual techniques, exercises, and so forth, which changes the physiology. So do you have to actually see them in person, or can you do this like Zoom? Over time, I had a lot of reluctance uh, doing uh, virtual visits um, from the get-go. And I think that certain services are much more apt to doing that. Um, and in particular, like, for example, I've done... Um, the initial visit, I prefer to work with people because I want them to have the sensory experience. So when somebody has challenges with moving without pain, they can be verbally instructed. They can use a visual instruction, watching me demo it. And, you know, sometimes it works, but some people need the kinesthetics. They need to feel what they're supposed to be doing. If I put my hand on a limb and then I have them move something else and I can cue them so that they can feel that, then their brain can, can, uh, basically put that together and help them understand how to move in the way that I want them to move. Um, but I have had some successes with that. I don't prefer to do it. Um, but I would say that the kind of work that I do now, I oftentimes get uh, outreaches for people with very difficult and complex chronic pain syndromes. And they're just kind of at the end of the rope where there's nothing else to do. So they end up contacting me and they don't live locally. So in those cases, what I might do is more of what I call quarterbacking their situation. So I'll help kind of do their intake, find out what's going on. I will teach them, as we can talk about here in a few, pain neuroscience education. And that way I can tell them which therapies I think are going to be helpful for them. And then we can outsource it to a local provider and then have them come back and say, hey, what happened? You know, how did things go? I'll help them process it and then figure out what they should do next. Um, And also very soon I will be offering a lot more hypnotherapy for chronic pain. And I think those sessions would work well virtually, although I am a little bit hesitant, I would like them to be able to be working with a physical based practitioner or somebody locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way they can kind of integrate the work with somebody as well. But um, again, that's just my experience so far of it with the kinds of, of cases that I see. Okay, well, uh, it's nice to know that they can still actually see you even though they might not be. Now, where exactly are you at in the world? I was in Santa Monica, so I was easily accessible, you know, in Los Angeles, but now I'm in Temecula, which is, I guess you'd say about a halfway point between Los Angeles and uh, San Diego. 
Okay. Okay. So kind of in between. So that's probably Midwest. good for those that are close in, you know, San Diego and, you know, California area that's, you know, closer to the San Diego area. It's a little so, bit of a hike, a little bit of a hike from the airport, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but not bad. So that's good. Um, so I love that they can do that and still be able to be seen and, and, you know, hypnotherapy does work virtually as well. And I, I know, you know, that you, you've said you've done some, uh, you prefer in person, which I totally understand as well. Um, I think it's really good. I think a lot of people miss that, especially with COVID and yeah. some of the things that are kind of happening that, you know, having that in person is pretty, pretty nice to be able to have. So it sounds like they just come in for an evaluation. You just kind of evaluate where they're at and kind of set them up with kind of a, a ideal kind of plan of what you think they should be doing. And then they kind of either work with you or work with a provider that you provide the information to. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, on the beginning end and in the intro process and in the initial evaluation, I would say is that I always tell people is, is really the majority of the magic because it's not an intake process that, that we'll ever really go through. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably because of the lack of time and energy as I listen to, even through podcasts, I listen to other clinicians talk about their intake process. Um, to me, I find that with a difficult case or a challenging case that has been to a lot of places, you can't see somebody for 55 minutes for the first initial evaluation. There's just no time. Um, and even with, I see with uh, people will call me and they want manual therapy. And I find that, you know, coming in and you know, just being able to sit down and talk about the issue, it feels so rushed. And I don't like that. And I would rather take my time to really engage with the story and find out what somebody's got going on and then find out what they know and what they don't know. In particular, what we're looking for is what are the beliefs that the person has about their situation, the beliefs that they have about their pain, because that is sending information to their central nervous system on how to respond to the stimuli that they experience. So, you know, some people may feel that they've been told certain things that are erroneous in nature, which actually are threatening to their nervous system. And this is where we get into pain neuroscience, where the idea is, is that essentially pain is not a thing. Uh, there is no such thing as pain nerves. What it is, pain is an evaluation of experience. So we get input from our body. Our nerves are sending information up our spinal cord to our brain. Our brain has to determine through lots of different activities and quadrants in the brain as it interprets that information to say, is this threatening information? Do I need to do something about this? If it is, then we get that noxious signal to our consciousness that's called pain. It's a message to try to get us to do something. To change. Absolutely. Now, in yep. acute pain, we look down, if you roll your ankle and it's the size of a softball, I mean, our brain goes, okay, well, this totally makes sense. And that's fine. Right. But in chronic pain, this is a different animal because we don't know how to interpret something that when we look down, there's nothing wrong, but yeah, yet we're experiencing pain. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if that person has been told that there is something mechanically wrong with them or a disc bulge, and I always use this example because most people will understand this that disc bulges were oftentimes, so, hey, you have a disc in your back that's bad. Okay, so listen to this languaging. You have a bad disc. Not sure what that means exactly, but what are you gonna do about it, doc? Well, there's nothing I can do about it. We, it's not bad enough to operate on it and uh, you should just go back to living your life. Okay, but I have a bad back. I have a bad disc. Does that mean I can't do the activities that I wanna do? Does that mean there's a lot of confusion over these things? Yeah, so I see that. 
Yeah. And then they go to another practitioner, maybe a chiropractor, not picking on any discipline, but everyone has its own thing is to say your back is out of alignment. I'm going to put your back into alignment again with this adjustment. And then, so this creates even more confusion. Well, is it a disc or is my back out? Mm-hmm. Or what does this mean? Because most people don't think about things in terms of anatomical pictures, you know, like right. someone like me does. So I can understand how this is very confusing for somebody. And then they, when they go to the gym to bend and lift, they're, they're oftentimes afraid to do certain movements because they feel they're bad, their back is bad and something could happen. And there's, there's lots of confusion. When you constantly send these messages to the nervous system of confusion, fear, apprehension, and worry, you send more information to the brain to do what? To raise the alarm, because the alarm should now be more sensitive because there's now more potential threat that could happen. And so now you're more stressed, right? We have more stress and we're more on edge and we're more what we call vigilant. And when we're more vigilant, we tend to be more reactive to other sorts of stimuli, maybe from your relationships or maybe from your work environment, you're more on edge. And all of these things kind of wrap in together. And that's why we see such a great variety of therapy techniques can be effective for people with chronic pain uh, at a superficial or maybe a topical level, like you could even get people with chronic pain to just do general meditation. And it will oftentimes help them a lot because it kind of calms that nervous system down. But within that, we might need to do, as we almost always do, need to do contextual uh, relaxation work, meaning with regards to specific movement or specific stressors, because we have to kind of work on everything at multiple levels. And That's kind of how I think about the work that I do. It's not so much techniques as it is just kind of looking at the whole and figuring out how much as we peel away, how specific do we need to get, or maybe how broad does the therapeutic work need to be in order to get that nervous system to not feel so threatened and therefore start to become, uh, to get into a better state of resting homeostasis so it feels safe. Sounds so interesting because um, I also sometimes have, you know, this strange little knee like ache that'll come up once in a while when I'm exercising yeah. and it doesn't happen all the time, but I notice it and I always have this crunchy kind of, <laughs> and I know that's bone to bone, right? Yeah. That's what I hear. So in my back of my mind, I'm like, you know, I'm always trying to protect my knees because yes. I want to make sure they're okay. So do I have something? I'm just curious because I have you here. I want to ask, is that something I should worry about? That's a really good question. And a perfect example and very reasonable, right? You hear sounds in your knee. You don't know what that means, but here's where things get tricky. When we oftentimes look at the research on certain things, like if you hear crunching sounds in your knees, most often this is called crepitus. And crepitus is completely non-pathological. There's no problem with this. Good to know. Yes, generally speaking. Now crepitus? each Yeah. And, and for each individual, you have to evaluate what that means. But I hear people tell me a lot, I hear popping or clicking. And I my usual response to them is I say, does it hurt? And they go, no, but they're worried about it. And the yeah. worry might create apprehension. Exactly. That was my point because that's, right. that's where I was saying I hesitate sometimes. I, I do it, but I'll I'll turn a certain way or make yeah. sure that it's not, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, 
when you talk to somebody and then again, like oftentimes, and this is not always hundred, I hate making total generalizations, but just for the point of our conversation. So if you might hear some popping or clicking, you might go to the doctor. And to me, a reasonable response is the doctor is going to rule out red flags, right? That something serious might be happening and saying that there's nothing going on there. These symptoms should be explained away appropriately say, well, when you move the joint, sometimes it clicks over something else. It, it doesn't mean anything. And oftentimes when you do exercises and stretches, it tends to go away. It's fine. I feel like that's an appropriate kind of response, but rather now we're in a weird time where a lot of times there's an overprescription of x-rays and MRIs and so forth. And the problem with this is, is that these issues or these kinds of scans are uh, highly, usually not very useful in people, particularly with chronic issues, because what they tend to do in the research shows is they overestimate problems. Mm -hmm. So this is just a general example is that if there's been research that if you take 100 people off the street and you do an MRI on their back, and then you find out what's going on with their spine, you'll find that approximately 60% of these people have some kind of finding on there that would be perceived to be abnormal whether they have a disc bulge or they have some degeneration or they have arthritis, 60%. But when you survey these people, the vast majority of them don't have pain at the time that the scan was done. So the question is, is that, is this just coincidence that these things are occurring while the person happens to have pain? And I'll bring this up for your listeners because nobody ever talks about this, but if you've ever gone to the doctor when you had a problem, a back problem or something like that, that's chronic, and they run a scan on you, then when you go to physical therapy or you go seek treatment, and let's say that the treatment is successful and you don't have pain anymore, do you go back to the doctor and rerun the scan? Not if you don't have pain. <laughs> so what matters, the dysfunction or the pain? I think the pain. So there we go. And we know, and here's where things get really <laughs> sketchy, is that pain is an output of the brain's perception of the threat, not the threat. So we're talking about, and it makes sense in acute pain when somebody comes in and they're writhing in pain and they broke a bone to run an x-ray or an MRI. But when somebody has chronic pain, chronic basically means that when the tissue has healed and everything in the body heals within six months, this is generally agreed upon, so somebody has pain that extends past an injury or the starting point, let's say they're at 10 months and they're still having pain, the tissue has healed, but yet the person still feels pain. The problem is no longer a tissue issue, it's a nerve issue. So the nerves have become sensitized. Mm -hmm. Now in that situation, what matters is the brain's interpretation of what is going on, the information coming from the tissues and, and the brain's perception, top down, bottom up, not the structure. So that is what we're wow, dealing this with. This is fascinating. So, <laughs> yes. And you're going to see where, and I get a lot of questions when I do podcasts, people are like, why are you seeing so much? Why are we seeing so much increase in chronic pain? Well, because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of pain and that chronic pain and acute pain are two completely different animals. If you ask me anything about acute pain, I'd know not that much more than the average person. Oh, rice, you know, uh, rest, ice, compression, elevation, go to the doctor, right? That's not my field. That's a, that's a you know, an initial first responder, right? Mm -hmm. My specialty is chronic pain. What happens when the tissue is fine, but you're still having pain? That's my world. And this is a completely different animal. 
That makes total sense. Wow, that was just such good information for us, for the listeners. And, and really, I felt like I could like see it, like as you were talking about it. So that was great. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. So if somebody were to want to work with you and um, where would they find you in this world? I mean, I know where you're at as far as physically, but do you have a website or a place where they could go to um, find more information out? Yeah, lots of resources. My website is releasemuscletherapy.com. And one of the things that I have on there is a, I have a copy of my digital book, which is kind of a synopsis of a lot of the stuff that I have been talking about, where we hear a lot of anecdotal stuff and you know, social media and, and so forth can create confusing and, and mixed up information. What I've done is I've actually gone and done all of the research and put it into the book. And you'll see all the references of the studies and everything that I'm talking about. Like most people don't realize that the number one factor that affects chronic pain sensitivity is the quality of your sleep. It's not exercise, it's not movement, it's not any of those things. And yet nobody talks about it. And in the book, I pulled up all the research for you. I show you exactly what's happening. And that way, as we start to kind of create this hierarchy of the things that you should be uh, looking at if you're dealing and, and coping with chronic pain, some of those things can be very helpful. And also some of the things that I talk about, which are very sketchy, you know, which is the idea of assessing posture, orthotics, you know, those are all things that people ask me about frequently. And the book is kind of like an evolving process where I'll continue to be adding things to it as I, you know, have more time. But uh, that information is available on there. So is this book, um, what's it called again? The, the name of the book is appropriate called, uh, Why Didn't My Doctor Tell Me That? Oh, I like it. <laughs> so it was the idea is that, you know, that doctors oftentimes, I have many doctors who are my clients. So when I talk to them about this stuff, even though, you know, there's some of their specialties that aren't chronic pain, mm -hmm. they're aware of the material that I'm saying for the most part, because they sit in conferences and so forth. But we run into this problem, and this is where we were talking about uh, the context of being able to have time and the right communication methods to explain to patients on, on, you know, when your appointments are 15 minutes, it's all that kind of stuff that they have. So people always wonder, why didn't my doctor tell me this? And I say, well, there's a lot to that, you know, but this is the stuff that I feel that can really help people um, avoid developing chronic pain to begin with, but also to help them resolve it. So um, the book is available there. And of course I do a lot of Instagram work and especially on the movement and because it's such a great, uh, I said, I should say platform for, for teaching movement and, and basic kind of quick help techniques as well. And that's uh, release muscle therapy is the handle on my Instagram page as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that, Sam. I really appreciate it. Um, but I want to ask you one question. If somebody was dealing with chronic pain and, and they needed one thing that could maybe help them to make that transition from being in pain to hopefully being a little relief, what would you say is that one thing that they could use or, or do that might help them? I would say number one is the concept of pain education. And uh, we know for sure, and there's research to back this, the more you know about pain, the less you tend to suffer from it, the more you can cope with it when you un actually understand what it is. But when you don't understand what pain is and how it develops, it's very confusing to the brain. And the more we can put pain into appropriate context, the better are that we are dealing with that. And that seems to be pretty much, in my opinion, step number one. I and then the rest that. of it is just kind of like working through it with the actual mechanics of like the how-to. And there's so many different therapies 
Um, I oftentimes yes. run into so many people that say I've done everything and you haven't done everything. And if you haven't done things in a certain syntax or order, there's always the possibility to go back through the order again when you start with pain education and then you take those steps that you'll get vastly better results when you do that. So true. And it sounds like this book will give them the, some knowledge and information that they might need. So it sounds like uh, definitely get the book and check it out. Um, and also we will post your website and the book links in the show notes for anybody that is interested so that you can e easily access those. And Sam, uh, we appreciate you being here today and sharing your message and your stories or anything else you'd like to share with the guest, my guest before we leave today. Well, um, I would say that, um, yeah, pain education and doing the steps and seeking out resources in which you could at least work to be your own advocate. You know, I think that the challenge is, is that we're having so much, uh, so much difficulty with trying to find trusted sources of information. And I think that uh, what it really is, is not always going to come from one place. It's going to come from multiple places and reach out to the practitioners that you're working with and find out uh, if, if you need a resource, go through them. And, and I think that's the thing is having practitioners branch out and create a community of like-minded individuals who are kind of working on this same general principle or guideline and avoid some of the infighting that tends to happen within practitioners and disciplines, right? And realizing they're all working toward the same common goal and I, I think that that's the sort of thing that's going to make things better for everyone. I really like that because that just tells me that you're all about helping people really get well. You know, it's not about come to me and I'll help you. It's, it's really just seeking out, getting the knowledge you need. Yes, you have some tools and techniques that may be different from others, but you can start somewhere, get the knowledge, understand what's going on, understand the pain, and then you can get the help from there. So thank you again for joining us today and being on our show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Donna, for having me. You're welcome. This is Donna Gammon, and this is Power to Grow. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a review now, and I will give you a free download of my blessed morning. This is something that is worth so much. It's what I use to get past my past, if you know what I mean. Until our next show, thank you again for joining us. This is Donna Gammon, and this is Power to Grow. Thank you.